Section 28 of Life of John Churchill, Duke of Marlborough by Louise Creighton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 13, Malplaquet, Part 2. Marlborough came back to The Hague on the 18th of May, 1709, accompanied by Lord Townsend, a distinguished Whig, who had been sent with him as joint plenipotentiary to arrange the terms of peace. Torcy at once visited him and was received with the Duke's usual courtesy. In him there was no coldness nor sternness, and Torcy was led to hope that there might also be no political morality. The Duke was warm in his expressions of regard for Louis the Fourteenth, and spoke of his earnest wish for peace. But he told Torcy that the English government was firmly decided as to the terms on which peace could be made, and that Townsend had accompanied him as a security that nothing less should be accepted. Marlborough's desire, apparently, was to appear personally willing to do anything in his power to serve Louis the Fourteenth, but at the same time to make it clear that he was so tied by instructions from home that he could do nothing of his own accord. Parliament had in truth passed a resolution that no peace should be concluded unless Louis the Fourteenth consented to demolish Dunkirk, that nest of pirates, to recognize the Protestant succession and banish the Stuarts from France. When Torcy spoke of the Stuarts, Marlborough expressed his earnest desire to be of any service that he could to James Edward as the child of the king for whom he would once have been ready to lay down his life. Here we see his old desire to be on good terms with all parties. It could never be certain that the pretender might not be called to the English throne. Marlborough wished at least to try and stand well with him, that in such an event he might declare that he had only been compelled by the force of circumstances to oppose him before. But when Torcy vaguely hinted at a bribe, Marlborough blushed and turned the conversation, and Torcy was convinced that he could not be bought, as Louis the Fourteenth had bought so many others. Torcy tried the envoys of each of the Allies separately. To the Dutch, to the English, to the Austrians in turn, he offered all that each individual could want, hoping to disturb the understanding that existed between them, and to dispose at least one of them to make peace. But the Allies remained true to one another, and Torcy only managed to deepen their belief in Louis the Fourteenth's insincerity by the way in which he prolonged the negotiations. The demands of the Allies, meanwhile, increased daily. They demanded the cession of such towns as would secure the frontiers of Holland, Germany, and Savoy, the demolition of Dunkirk, and the recognition of the Protestant succession in England. Louis the Fourteenth was to withdraw all support from his grandson in Spain, and acknowledge the rights of the House of Austria to the entire kingdom of Spain, if after a two-months truce Philip refused to withdraw from Spain, Louis the Fourteenth was to help the Allies to turn him out. These and various other minor demands were drawn up as the preliminaries of peace and were signed by the English, Dutch, and Austrian plenipotentiaries. Torcy in vain pleaded for some portion of the Spanish dominions which might be made into a kingdom for Philip. But when he saw that the Allies would relax nothing from their demands, he at last appeared willing to accept the preliminaries, only saying that he could not sign them without permission from Louis the Fourteenth. 
He therefore set off for Paris, leaving Rouillet behind, who was to sign the preliminaries as soon as instructions came from Paris. Marlborough seems to have been full of hope that peace would be concluded. He even began arrangements with Godolphin for the return of the English troops. But Torcy probably knew well that Louis XIV would never consent to such terms, and had only affected to accept them for the sake of gaining time. When he reached Versailles, a council was summoned to consider the preliminaries. There was no hesitation in declaring that, humbled though France was, it was impossible to accept them. For even if they were accepted, they would not bring peace, only a truce for two months, after which Louis XIV would be obliged to help in making war upon his own grandson. For it was hardly to be expected that Philip, who had now entirely gained the love of the Spaniards, would give up his kingdom at his grandfather's bidding. If I must wage war, said Louis XIV, I would rather wage it against my enemies than against my children. A messenger was at once, on the 2nd June, sent to Rouillet, bidding him return to France after telling Hensius that Louis XIV rejected the preliminaries. We cannot wonder at this conclusion, for without doubt the terms of the Allies were harsh and exorbitant. In these negotiations Louis XIV reaped the fruit of his former insincerity and disregard of treaties. No one would trust him. They felt that he must be utterly humbled, or else he might become dangerous again. It was this feeling and the grasping spirit of Austria that provoked the Allies to make such exorbitant demands. After the failure of the negotiations, the Dutch urgently demanded the conclusion of a barrier treaty between themselves and England, which would determine the concessions to be made to them when peace was finally concluded. Marlborough thought their demands exorbitant, and was afraid that once sure of all they wanted, they would desert the cause of the Allies. But Godolphin pressed the conclusion of the treaty, and as Marlborough refused to give it the authority of his name, it was at last signed by Townsend alone. Marlborough was loudly accused by his opponents both at the time and afterwards of prolonging the war for his own interests. They said that his love of money made him hesitate to give up the large salary which he enjoyed as captain-general. On the other hand, his private letters to his wife and to Godolphin tell a very different tale. He repeats, as we have seen continually, his longing for peace, that he may be able to spend his time quietly with his wife and friends. He always speaks of his desire for a firm and lasting peace. Like Eugène, he profoundly distrusted Louis the Fourteenth, and thought it necessary for the security of Europe to exact great concessions from him. The Whigs, too, were decidedly in favor of a continuance of the war for party reasons, and so once more a favorable opportunity of making peace was lost. Meanwhile, the French were roused to new exertions by the efforts of their enemies to humble them. Louis XIV, at Torcy's advice, addressed a letter to the governors of the provinces, telling them his reasons for refusing to make peace. He bade them publish his letter and call upon the people to make new sacrifices. The people responded bravely to his call. Hunger aided Louis and sent recruits to his armies who hoped that in the field bread would be less scarce than at home. At court there was a great show of patriotism. The king and the great lords sent their plate to be coined, 
and Madame de Maintenon and the other ladies ostentatiously ate black bread. Louis the Fourteenth professed to share in all the sufferings which the war brought upon his people, but the same shameful mismanagement of the finances went on. The same monopolies were held by the great lords, who bought up the corn and speculated on the sufferings of the people. One important change was made. Villars was sent to take command of the French army. He was one of the most brilliant of the French generals, vain and extravagant in his conduct and speech, but a hero in action. He knew both how to make wise plans and how to execute them. He was not like Vendôme, who would rise from orgies of filthy self-indulgence to strike perchance a vigorous blow, or to find he had slept away the right moment. Villar was always on the alert. He had never lost a battle and was much beloved by the soldiers. But when he reached the army on the frontier, he was horrified at the condition in which he found it. The magazines were quite empty. The horses were dying from want of fodder. The men were half starved and half naked and were selling even their arms for food. But there was plenty of courage in the men, and Villar did his utmost to arouse their spirit. He was constantly in the camp, and by kindly sympathy and inspiriting words, restored their courage and increased his own popularity. Only imagine, he wrote, the horror to see an army in want of bread. Today it was not delivered till the evening and late in the evening too. Yesterday, that I might supply the brigades which had to march, I was obliged to impose a fast on those that stood still. His army, meanwhile, increased till it numbered 110,000, about equal to the army of the Allies. It is a marvel, wrote Villar, how we subsist, and a still greater marvel is the patience with which our soldiers support the feeling of hunger. The Allies were anxious to do something striking to appease those who murmured at the continuance of the war. They must either win a battle or take a town. Villar had entrenched himself in a strong position between Douai and the Lys, so that it was impossible to attack him. Marlborough managed, however, to make Villar believe that his object was to fight a battle, and when the French were entirely mystified as to his real intentions, he marched rapidly and silently to invest Tournay, one of the great frontier fortresses. The governor of Tournay was quite unprepared for a siege. Some of his garrison were absent collecting cattle, many of the officers were away, and the town was poorly provisioned. Still it had been so strongly fortified by the skill of Vauban that Villars hoped the siege would occupy the whole campaign. The investment of the city began on the 3rd of July, and on the 7th the trenches were opened. The heavy rains which had hindered the movements of the troops at the beginning of the campaign still went on, but the Allies managed slowly to advance. Villar, meanwhile, did all he could to harass them by sending out parties to impede their supplies. But Eugène, who commanded the covering army, whilst Marlborough directed the siege, so posted his army that Villar was no longer able to interfere with the besiegers. Tournay possessed a fine cathedral, and orders were given by Marlborough that great care should be taken that no harm should be done to it by the fire from his artillery. After a siege of only twenty-one days, the governor of Tournay capitulated rather than await a general assault, and the garrison retired into the citadel. 
the citadel was protected by many outworks and by an elaborate series of mines which made its attack very difficult and terribly dangerous the struggle was in great part carried on underground one party of miners met with another and engaged in desperate fights and in the darkness friend was often mistaken for foe often the mines were blown up when filled with men for in this ghastly labyrinth there were mines below mines once three hundred men were blown up or stifled in smoke by one explosion often men were buried alive or drowned by the water that inundated the mines when the miners of the allies proved insufficient it was only with the greatest difficulty that the bravest soldiers could be persuaded to engage in this terrible warfare where they had to struggle with unseen foes and could not know a moment's safety End of section 28.